We'll be reading in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through verse 12 today. Acts 13, 1 through 12. If you would, church family, stand with me as we read God's word together. Acts 13, starting in verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius, Pelagius, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, the one who reigns supreme over all, this morning we come now to your word. These are not merely the words of men, but Lord, they are the words divinely inspired. They are words of God given to us as a precious gift. I pray, Lord, that we would not waste the gift that we have before us today, the gift of your word, to hear from the creator of the universe, the most holy, most righteous, most just. May we today, Lord, take full advantage of what you've given us. May we learn from your word. May you encourage us, instruct us, challenge us, convict us, and Lord, grow us into the image of Christ today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As a 90s kid, there's all kinds of TV shows that I can think back uh, over, shows that my dad used to watch. My dad was a, uh, an avid TV watcher. That's probably where I get it from. I'd come by it honestly. And one of the shows that my dad loved to watch, and as I grew, I began to enjoy as well. And even still, I'll, I'll sometimes go back and watch reruns of a show called Home Improvement. It was a Tim Allen show. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Uh, I think it was 90s, early, two, early 2000s is when the show aired. 
But the, the premise of the show really uh, was about this guy named Tim Taylor. And Tim Taylor's uh, just complete and utter caricature of manhood and masculinity uh, that was depicted in the show. One of the things that uh, he was known for was the show Tool Time. And one of the phrases that he would use regularly on the show and even in his daily life as he was constantly revamping things around the house, as he was constantly doing uh, things to his cars, he was constantly showing off various tools that he had modified on his television show. It was always under the mantra of what? More power. Yeah, that's right. Oh, oh, oh. That's what he would do. More power was the mantra. And it's a mantra that I think certainly as men, most of us in here can relate to, perhaps the women not as much. I think that's why my mom hated the show. She thought it was so silly and dumb. But the, the mantra of Tim, Tool, Tim the Toolman Taylor was more power. Whatever problem he ever came across throughout the show could always be solved by more power. Whatever needed to be fixed around the house, whatever tool he was working on, that was the solution. And as we all know, that would always go awry, and then he would have to get the real answer from his neighbor, Wilson. But there was one particular episode, I just have to mention it, that's my, one of my favorite episodes, when he, he modified his lawnmower. He was about to race against uh, the one and only Bob Vila on their lawnmowers that they had, had souped up, or you know, they were their personal lawnmowers. And Tim Taylor got his hands on a jet engine and hooked up this jet engine to his riding lawnmower to face off against Bob Vila in this big race. Bob Vila, with his own TV show, was obviously Tim's arch enemy throughout the series of the show. And through the, the silliness of this race, he crashes through hay bales and signs and just ends, as most of his projects do, in utter disaster. But one thing he accomplished regularly was that he was able to get more power. As Christians... One thing that I think is a mantra that we do not need in Christ Jesus is that mantra, the mantra of more power. And I say that because what power is it that we have as believers? What is it that endows, that, that, in, that uh, indwells us as believers? It is nothing less than the very power of God. It is the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And what we see from our text today, as we see throughout all of the scriptures, but I think in a, in a particular way today, is we see that the power that dwells within believers is a power that is unmatched in any other area of life, any other area of both physical or spiritual realities. The power that lives within believers is one that can never be outdone. And we see today as the church is pressing onward, as the church is growing, and as the, the church is seeking to expand, and world evangelism is now beginning in the book of Acts, and it is taking root, it is happening, it is being done because of the unstoppable, incomparable power of the Holy Spirit. And so today we will take a look at the power of the Holy Spirit that so forces the church forward, that so moves the church and drives them and establishes God's mission on the earth. And we will look, so, look at three particular points from our passage today. Point number one that we'll look at, which we'll be looking at verses one through four, is that the Holy Spirit works in and through the church. Verses one through four give us this 
scene of the church at Antioch, a church that we just saw established in the past two chapters. Now here at this church where, where Paul and Barnabas and some other great names are, are listed, we see the church gathered together for worship. Verse number two tells us that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke to them. The Holy Spirit came upon them, spoke to them, probably in the form of some sort of prophetic utterance, and declared to them to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which he had called them. We see the Holy Spirit working here in a way that I think is important for us to know. And that is that we see the Holy Spirit working in and through the church. Notice how the Holy Spirit works in and through the church as he calls Paul and Barnabas onto the mission field. Paul and Barnabas are not motivated, are not driven onto the mission field because of some individual miraculous event that happened to them. Certainly we know that that's how Paul came to faith in Christ, right? Or at least initially it was because of a, a great and powerful moment, an interaction that we had with the Lord on the road. But now we see as he and Barnabas are being called onto the mission field, it happens within the context of the Spirit working through the local church. As the church was gathered together, was worshiping the Lord, was praying, was fasting, it is through this event, and as we know there are prophets here, that the prophecy is delivered, that the Holy Spirit speaks and calls Paul and Barnabas onto the mission field. And church, I would argue that this is a rather ordinary way that the Holy Spirit works in the life of believers, that he works in and through the local church, even outside specifically sending people onto the mission field. But that's a very specific case that we have before us here. And I think even in this, we see this is a, an appropriate and right model for the church today as far as sending people onto the mission field. But even outside of this specific sending of calling people onto the mission field, how does the Holy Spirit work in the life of believers in connection with the local church? When you begin to think about it, you realize that the Holy Spirit's work in the lives of believers oftentimes happens in and through the local church, or at least as magnified, is brought to its fullness and its proper place in the context of the local church. Conviction of sin. How is it that oftentimes we as believers are convicted of sin? A lot of times it's from the admonition, from the, the, the uh, speaking of believers around us in the context of our local community. It's not a fun thing, it's not an easy thing, but it's something that we're called to do, to exhort one another, to confess our sin one to another, or think about confirmation of giftings. This is an interesting one, and one that I have found to be true, that many people, when left to their own devices, will think that they have certain giftings, certain callings upon their life, that when they go to their local church, many times... Their local church, their, their brothers and sisters in Christ, their pastors, their shepherds will say, maybe not. In that case, the Lord uses the local church in such a way to help believers understand and grow in their giftings, to grow in their callings, or perhaps confirm or not confirm a gifting or calling that a person might think that they have. Or even, and perhaps especially important, instruction in doctrine. Now, I'm not here to say that we can't 
be instructed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read God's word on our own? We absolutely can. But let us not discount the role that the local church plays in the life of the believer to help instruct us, to help grow us in our understanding. You don't have to think any further than Apollos, who we're going to read about in a few chapters, who though he, he loved the Lord and was a gifted speaker and had a certain amount of understanding, what was Apollos lacking in his life? He was lacking right understanding and a more full understanding of right doctrine, which Priscilla and Aquila were happy to provide for him. We see that the Lord uses the context of the local church and fellowship with the local church and community in the local church in all of these areas in order to utilize, or excuse me, in order to uh, work in the life of believers by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I would argue that we have reason to be suspicious when a person is claiming to be directed in a certain way, called to a specific thing, if they are living disconnected from the local church. The reason I say this, bold as it might seem, is that there's already, if a person is living in disconnection with the local church, in disunity from the local church, what is the problem already? They are living in a way that the scriptures have not called them to live. For what do the scriptures call us to? They call us to live in communion with one another. They call us to bear one another's burdens, to care for one another, to lift one another up, to use our giftings for the sake of one another. If a believer is living in a way that is disunified, that is disconnected from all of that, then they are already living in a way that is contrary to the Holy Spirit's leading. For the Holy Spirit will never lead us in a way that contradicts the very word of God. And the word of God calls us to live in community with one another, to live in connection with the church. We have reason to be suspicious when a person comes claiming some some great calling upon their life when they live completely disconnected from the local church. This is often the case in in maybe your your local coffee shop. We've all met the the local coffee shop theologian who who knows all about the scriptures and has all kinds of insights to to grant and wisdom and, and can tell you all of these great things and yet they live their lives alone, detached from the local church. We have reason to be suspicious of those things for it is in the context of the local church that the Holy Spirit works in the lives of God's people. What we see as the way things often go in the New Testament church is that the Holy Spirit works through the local church to guide his people and especially to confirm the directing and calling on Christians' lives. Even consider the church in Antioch. The church in Antioch here, graced by such brothers as Paul, Barnabas, and others, even after receiving this revelation, this word from the Holy Spirit, hearing the Holy Spirit declare to them, set Saul and Barnabas apart for my purposes. What does the church do? They don't just immediately say, all right, you heard it. Get out of here. Go. What do they do? They immediately and still go to their knees in prayer, praying with one another and fasting, continuing as one body, as one community to confirm the calling that the Holy Spirit has put upon these men's life and to send them out. And they do so together. After a time of prayer and fasting with the calling 
having been confirmed, they send out Paul and Barnabas after laying their hands on them. But we see what looks like some sort of contradiction, some sort of error, some sort of discrepancy between verses 3 and 4, don't we? What do we see in verse 3? It says, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They being who? The church in Antioch. But then what do we read immediately in verse 4? So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Well, who was it? Was it the Holy Spirit that sent out Saul and Barnabas, or was it the local church? And the answer, of course, is yes. It was the local church as directed, as influenced by, as submitting to the work of the Holy Spirit that sent out Paul and Barnabas. The Holy Spirit sent Paul and Barnabas out, but, they did, but he did so via the local church. You see, when a healthy church is functioning the way it ought to, is following the leading of the Spirit, as well as remaining committed to the Word of God and to prayer, then when the local church moves in this way, it is doing so as an instrument of the Holy Spirit. There's a question that has to be be asked here of us as as a church here at Redeemer Fellowship Church. Are we committed to our prayers, to our fasting, to the Word of God, to the leading of the Holy Spirit in such a way that we would be comfortable making this claim that as we make decisions, that as we act, that it is the same as saying that the Holy Spirit has acted? That's what's happening here in the context of the local church. That as they sent out Paul and Barnabas, it was the same as saying that the Holy Spirit sent them out. And I think we can understand that there's a a certain amount of grace that God gives to his church, a lot of mercy, a lot of compassion that he shows us, but at the same time, should we not feel the weight of this as an encouragement, as an exhortation to us to spend time together in prayer, to call upon the will of the Lord, both in our lives personally, but also as a church, for this was a church effort to pray, to fast, and then to send these missionaries out. This is the way that the Holy Spirit often works through the context of the local church. Point number two, the Holy Spirit's work attracts opposition. We see this in verses five through eight. In this passage, we see here that Paul and Barnabas arrive in Cyprus and the gospel is being proclaimed and the Holy Spirit is working powerfully. And we see this by the fact that even the the leader, the proconsul, this guy named Sergius Paulus, the ruler of Cyprus, asks for Paul and Barnabas specifically to come to him and to proclaim this message that he is hearing all across this island, that he is hearing proclaimed. He calls and says, bring them to me so that I might hear the message that's being proclaimed. The Holy Spirit is working and succeeding. And inevitably, every single time, this is when opposition will rise up And the devil will seek to squash, seek to hinder the work of God. And that's exactly where we meet the antagonist of our story, this guy named Bar-Jesus, this magician, this false prophet as he is described in our text. Now the word magician here is somewhat misleading for us. I think often because we think of magician, we think of someone who does little party tricks. We think of an illusionist, someone who pulls rabbits out of hats or uses smoke and mirrors to to deceive you, to trick your mind and 
and for the purpose of, of entertainment, right? But the word magician here carries a lot more weight than that. This is not some party trickster that's being described here. This is not an entertainer that's being described here. But the word magician here denotes the idea of one who is using occultic practice. He is an occultic practitioner, a, a diviner, one who is appealing to spiritual forces in order to do things like proclaim the future to people, in order to give visions, in order to claim some sort of divine revelation, which is why he is described also as a false prophet, because he, he is a deceiver. He is a liar, but he is one who is doing so by the power of dark forces. And while the word is being proclaimed, as Paul and Barnabas come and they proclaim the word before the ruler, we see here that this man is doing everything he can to hinder the message from having its effect. The text says that he was seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. This is the task of all who do the devil's bidding. This is the task of demonic forces. This is the task of Satan himself to as best he can squash the proclamation of the word. Hinder it, stop it in whatever way he can. In a 2019 edition of the catalog Table Talk, there was a great article written by Steve Lawson. And this particular edition of Table Talk was fascinating. It actually uh, pretty closely paralleled the idea of C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. If you're unfamiliar with that book, the idea behind The Screwtape Letters is that it is an elder demon, a servant of Satan, writing to a younger demon, writing to his nephew in order to explain to him, in order to teach him how best to keep his human subject, his patient, in the grips of the devil. And when he does come to faith in Christ, how best to hinder him from being any more effective than possible. And in this table talk back from September of 2019, it's called A Field Guide from the Abyss, Steve Lawson writes, from the perspective of a demon, of those who would do the bidding of Satan, and I think correctly writes about the devil's strategy to hinder the word of God. He says this, our strategy, remember, speaking as a demon, our strategy is to unleash a full-scale frontal assault on the word of our enemy. This has been the essence of our sinister strategy from the very beginning. Over the centuries, nothing has changed. Our modus operandi is the same. The enemy does his most damaging work to us when his word is preached, taught, respected, and followed. And I think this rings true, which is why we see this man, Bar-Jesus, this magician, this false prophet doing everything he can to hinder the proclamation of the word, to cause the ruler, the proconsul, to, to deviate from listening to the word, from hearing the word, from believing the word as it is proclaimed. Guess what, church family? The more we commit ourselves to the word of God, the more we commit ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit, the more opposition from the enemy we will experience also. And this over and over and over again proves itself to be true. When we as Christians begin to experience victory in our lives, when we see the Lord working, when we see him working by the power of the Holy Spirit, that is most often when the devil is going to wage war against us 
the hardest. We see this in our sanctification. When we begin to listen to the word of God, submit ourselves to the word of God, oftentimes that is when we become relaxed in our spiritual disciplines, when we slow in our sanctification. Or in the case of our assurance. Isn't it often the case that we, the more we read and understand God's word, submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit, the more we see our own sinfulness, and then what? The Holy Spirit is, or excuse me, the devil is eager and ready to show us that very thing, to show us our sinfulness and to cause us to question our assurance, saying, look at you, look how filthy you are. Look what you did that this last week. You don't deserve God's grace. You don't deserve his mercy. You are wicked. And he eats away at our assurance. And let me just encourage you believers, because I know this can happen to any and every one of us in here, that if that is you today and your assurance is being chipped away at, if the devil is seeking to cause you to question your salvation, your security, then let me encourage you to look to the cross of Christ and remember his words, it is finished. That the full wrath of God was taken by him, that the Lord now judges us as righteous when we trust in Christ, not because we are living perfectly righteous today, because we're not, but he has declared us righteous because, God, because Christ's righteousness, his perfect life, perfect obedience, and the satisfaction of God's wrath has been applied to us by our faith. Now we stand justified before God, despite how we have lived, despite the way we fall short, despite the way we fail, it is because of our faith in Jesus Christ and his completed work on the cross. The devil is happy and pleased to devastate your assurance, to keep you defeated, to keep you under his boot as much as he possibly can. Do not allow it. Look to Christ. He hits us in the form of questioning and causing us to fail in our evangelism. He's happy to cause us to trip up when it comes to our fellowship with one another, as we've already talked about. The devil loves to disrupt fellowship, doesn't he? Because he knows that the the church united is a powerful force. So he's happy to disrupt our fellowship, to cause you to think ill of your brother and sister in Christ, to cause you to think, you know, I've got other things going on that are just more important than fellowshipping with my brother and sister in Christ. Whatever the case may be, he's happy to do it. And he knows how to do it well. 1 John 4, 1 through 3 warns us of false prophets that will come in and oppose the Lord. John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This spirit is of the this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. That is what we see in Bar Jesus, this magician, this occult practitioner, this false prophet, that he is a representative of the spirit of the Antichrist. He is an Antichrist. And we face the same kind of opposition today. It may not look like like an occult practitioner who's coming, interrupting our, our conversations, our sermons. Oftentimes, it takes the form of other things. It might be a television pastor who is teaching something contrary to the sound doctrine that we see in the scriptures. It might be in the form of a college professor 
who's happy to break down your confidence as best he can to direct you away from the faith that might even, for some of us in here, be friends or family. Those who we love and perhaps even love us but hate Christ and find his name to be appalling. In all these forms, we need to recognize and are meant to see from this passage that false prophets will arise, that antichrists will come up and seek to distract you, to turn you away from the faith. And we are called to be on guard against them. But we are not called, we are not told these things so that we might be discouraged. For indeed, the next part gives us a great amount of confidence. And that brings us to point number three. The Holy Spirit will always accomplish the Father's purposes. Verses 9 through 12 make this exceptionally clear. That no purpose of God will ever be thwarted. God will accomplish his will by the same power that raised Christ from the dead. All of God's purposes will be accomplished. Job in Job 42 too says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And this is exactly what the Holy Spirit does in the life of Sergius Paulus. That despite the opposition, despite Bar-Jesus there seeking to distract him, seeking to pull him away from the faith, the Holy Spirit will not be stopped. The final picture we see in our story is a great display of the power of the Holy Spirit over the powers of darkness, which really could be the title of our sermon today. The power of light over the power of darkness. Paul, as he was proclaiming the word to the proconsul, had had enough of this false prophet. He had had enough of this man, Bar-Jesus, who was proclaiming false teaching. And he turned, he looked him dead in the eye, stared at him, and proclaimed these words, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? What boldness we see from Paul here as he speaks to bar Jesus, as he stands before the proconsul. This is a kind of boldness that would largely be unacceptable today. In fact, there was an instance several years back when a man read on the radio, just read, one of the most famous sermons that has ever been preached is a sermon by a guy named Jonathan Edwards back in the Great Awakening called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And just for reading this sermon on the radio, he and the radio broadcast got all kinds of flack. But listen, it wasn't flack from a bunch of unbelievers It was flat from people who claimed Christ, who said this message is too harsh, this message is too mean, this is not the God of love that I serve. And yet if you read that sermon, you will see and you will know that it is a very true and faithful exposition of the truths revealed in God's word in the book of Deuteronomy. This kind of boldness is unacceptable today. How would most people today handle this situation? As the word is being proclaimed and there's one who would seek to distract or or contradict what we are saying. What we would probably in our day and age think is appropriate would be to say, hey, why don't we, why don't we maybe try and find some common ground? Why don't you explain to me what your disagreements are and maybe we can dialogue about it. Maybe we can go get coffee. 
Maybe we could sit down and talk about this aside at a later date, you know, work this out. Maybe we can come to some sort of agreement. Maybe like we're both sort of saying the same thing. Maybe you have your truth, I have mine, right? We can all just kind of get along. Not so with the Apostle Paul. And it's written for us in divine scripture, right? And so we can't say that this was the wrong thing to do. In fact, Paul did exactly what he should have done. He doesn't seek to pull this man aside. He doesn't show him patience in order to accommodate him. And the reason he doesn't is because Paul recognized the intention of this man's heart. And he rebukes and condemns him in very striking terms. He calls him son of the devil, enemy of all that is good, all that is righteous, full of deceit and villainy. These were harsh, harsh words that Paul had just delivered. Even just to be called a son of the devil. Now, we know he's not saying that he was actually sired by the devil, that somehow the devil had, had produced this man as some sort of offspring. But as we talked about last week, if you were here last Sunday evening, the idea of being a son of the devil is the idea that you are doing the bidding of the devil, that you are imitating the devil. He says in a somewhat ironic way, you, son of Jesus, that's what bar Jesus means, son of Jehovah, son of Joshua is the old Hebrew name. You are not son of Jesus, but son of the devil. For you do the bidding of your father. And here we see pictured the battle between light and darkness that is ever present in our world. But even though the battle rages, we know where the victory lies. We know where true power is found. And it is not in the darkness. Let us not forget the great words of John in John 1, 5 in his great prologue where he says, The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And indeed, the darkness cannot overcome it. What happens in Verse 11 shows us exactly that. Paul says, after giving this man such a stark rebuke, after proclaiming and pronouncing upon him this son of the devil, this enemy of all righteousness, he goes on to say, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. This charlatan, this occult practitioner, this false prophet who claimed divine power and indeed vision to see things that were unseen, to proclaim to people the future, was now left groping about in the darkness. An outward picture of this man's inward spiritual state. What great power is on display here by the Holy Spirit? Now, I would want to say a quick word about this man, Bar-Jesus, and the interaction that Paul has with him. It might not seem like it at first, but we might understand what just happened to be here, in fact, should understand it, to be an act of love and mercy and even grace on the part of the Apostle Paul. For indeed, what is not loving, what is not gracious, is to allow this man to continue on in his ways to allow him to continue being used by the devil, to allow him to 
continue to carry on in his life. But what Paul does is write to condemn him, to rebuke him. And indeed, the power that the Holy Spirit acts in to blind this man. What do we read about this blindness? Mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. But he says he will be blind and unable to see for a time. Can we think of anyone else who was maybe somewhat wicked? Who was maybe somewhat opposed to the work of the Lord? Who was struck with a form of temporary blindness? It's this man, Paul, who is right here speaking to Bar-Jesus. We don't know what happens to this man. There are some speculation throughout church history, but I'm not going to make any speculation. But what we do know is that God is very, very able, even in the midst of this kind of condemnation, and even because of this kind of judgment of blindness, to save a lost soul to bring him to his senses, to help him see that he is opposing the one true living God and to ultimately save his soul. In fact, this is the best chance the bar Jesus probably had. God's power over the darkness and spiritual forces of this world were on full display. And when you look at this story, ask yourself the question, who displays true power in this story? Is it this magician this occult practitioner who could proclaim the future, who could see certain things, who could impress some certain people by the power of dark forces? Or was it Paul and dwelt by the Holy Spirit? Was it light or darkness? The answer is clear and obvious to us. True power is found in the Spirit of God, the very one who dwells in his children. And all throughout this passage, the power of God over the power of darkness is on full display. In fact, it's on display in one way you might not even realize if you haven't studied this passage. And it's seen all the way back in verse 1. We see a certain man named in verse 1 of chapter 13. His name is Mannion. And he's described in the ESV as a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. It's described in, in other translations as, as perhaps a, a brother-in-law or a, a, some sort of relation. But one thing that we can determine for certain was that this man was probably from the household of Herod the Tetrarch, that is, Herod Antipas. And what do we know to be true of Herod Antipas? That he was the man who opposed God. That he was the man who killed John the Baptist. He was the man that conspired to execute Jesus. But not after first mocking him and ridiculing him. This man, certainly on the side of darkness, Herod Antipas, had one living in his household that has now become a leader at the church at Antioch. The light of the gospel, the light of Christ, has gone so far as to infiltrate the house of Herod Antipas, the one who conspired to kill the Messiah. What a great display of God's power of light over darkness, the power of the Holy Spirit and the power that we press onward in. And church family, lest you think that it's necessary to work miracles and signs and wonders and, and be able to proclaim blindness upon people in this way, in order to work in the power of God, let me just 
point you to one last thing. Look at what Luke actually records about the conversion of Sergius in verse 12. What do we see in verse 12? Then the proconsul, that is Sergius Paulus, believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. What is it that actually drove this man, that actually caused his conversion, that actually the Holy Spirit used to convert him? Certainly he saw the power, saw what had occurred, and he was amazed, no doubt. But the power that was on display was on display for him for the purpose of confirming the message that he heard. For indeed, he was astonished, not just at the power that was displayed, but at the word of God that was proclaimed, at the teaching of the Lord. As believers, we can know that the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that's on full display here, can and does work in and through us, even if you don't have the gift of prophecy, even if you aren't able to cast out demons, even if you aren't able to lay your hands and heal people or perform signs and wonders, the power of God is still working in and through you because the power of God is not limited in that way. So the question we have to ask, rightly so, how can we press on in the power of the Holy Spirit? And I would offer for us two points of application today. If if we were to ask this question of us, read this text, see the power on display, how the church is moving forward and evangelism is happening and the mission is being taken to the ends of the earth as it is starting here. How can we, as a church today in the year 2023, press on in the power of the Holy Spirit? I would offer us two encouraging words. First of all, remain firmly committed to the church and to prayer and fasting and the disciplines. For indeed, this is what the church was about when the Holy Spirit moved, when the Holy Spirit spoke and sent out Paul and Barnabas. They were sent out out of the context of the gathering of the local church, of the community. Brothers and sisters, let us never forsake the fellowship of believers, the gathering together of the saints, the commitment to the local church. And then secondly, and more importantly, by remaining firmly committed to Christ and to the scriptures. For regardless of what signs and wonders might be done, that is where power lies. It lies in the church as they remain faithful to the word of God, faithful to Christ. For we're indeed reminded by John in 1 John 4, 4. This is how he concludes the passage that we've already read, warning us against false prophets and antichrists that would come. He goes on to say this. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This is the confidence that we have. This is the the knowledge that we have. That he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So as we, the church here today, remain faithful to the word of God, remain faithful to one another, remain faithful to Christ, we can have confidence going forward, confidence pressing on, knowing that the same power that raised Christ from the dead, that caused blindness to come upon this wicked man, is the same power that is at work in us today. Let us be confident in that. Let us rejoice in that. And let us go boldly into the mission field with that understanding.